This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. From Christianity Today, I'm Sandra McCracken, and this is The Slow Work. We are all creatives at heart, no matter what career or calling we find ourselves in. Inspiration can happen in a second, but the work of creativity only happens when we're patient enough to stay with it. It takes grit to see it through. I love hearing what this looks like for musicians, poets, painters, writers, and advocates. So I've been talking to them, and I want to invite you to listen in. As you do, I hope that your faith story gets tangled up in your work story and that your creative mind would be renewed by hope and possibility. Thanks for listening. Hey, welcome back to The Slow Work. My guest today is David Ramirez. He is a singer and songwriter from Austin, Texas. I have been a fan of his work for many years and I'm so glad to have him on the show to share a little bit about his creative process. And just recently we recorded a duet version of a Jackson Brown song called Running on Empty. This song really sparks for me and I think for both of us as just a timely reminder of how fast paced our world is. And just in the context of this show, it seemed like a fitting starter for a conversation. Thanks for listening. Well, first of all, getting to sing Jackson Brown with you is just like a real thrill. I, that song goes back a long way for me and Jackson Brown's voice. And saw him play last year when he was on that tour with James Taylor. It was like a big arena show that had been postponed. So it was the first, kind of the first time being back in a big gathering like that. But do you remember first hearing that song or Jackson Brown's music? Oh, goodness. Uh, I mean, I got to classics way late in the game. You know, you? Uh, uh-huh. you know, I don't I don't think I got my first Beatles or Dylan record till around 22 or 23. And those records introduced me to a lot of a lot of other greats. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up playing sports. The, the arts was not a, a culture that okay. I was familiar with. So the first time I heard Jackson Brown, I can't recall the moment, but I imagine it was probably late 20s, early mm-hmm. 30s, maybe 10 years ago. Did, were you aware of your creativity even when you were kind of focused on sports or it just kind of awakened later in your life? Yeah, it was, it was, my parents moved houses and I was zoned to a different school and I'm oh, walking wow. around the cafeteria with a lunch tray trying to figure out who I'm going to sit with. Mm-hmm. And the, the kids who happened to wave me over were all in choir and theater and they were all in their own bands and writing their own music. And so it, it really was just kind of in the stars or, you know, coincidence or whatever. Yeah. yeah, it was. It wasn't until then that I was introduced to really music on my own terms and what that actually looked like. And for me, the initial out the gate feeling was I finally felt that I had a place to belong and I finally had a, a voice to, you know, like we all do, you know, work yeah. through the things that I was going through as a kid and, yeah, you know, uh, understanding myself better. You know, I didn't grow up with like a big group of homies and even though I played sports, it wasn't. It wasn't really a culture that I felt accepted. And, you know, locker room world is uh, not very kind to yeah. to young kids. And, uh, you know, I felt alone. So getting mm-hmm. to play music and, you know, hang out with folks who were very accepting of others and mm-hmm. uh, 
so initially music for me was just like, oh, okay, I can, I feel myself now. And that was, I'm here, <laughs> I exist. And, you know, I feel like yeah. I matter. And, you know, it wasn't until later that I, uh, I got to see the beautiful, you know, tradition of storytelling and, and how yeah. that brings people together and allows others to feel less alone. Yeah. I relate to that story of how like the coming of age story and figuring out who you are is somehow woven together with the creative songwriting or singing or expressing how you feel and putting it in words for sure. Somebody else gets it. Yeah. And I guess I don't think I heard Bob Dylan until college, but I heard things that he had, like I heard artists that he had influenced. Sure. And I, I remember hearing, I think in some ways there's like a time release where you're not really ready for some of those influences until it's time. If I had heard Dylan when I was, you know, as early as I heard Johnny Cash, I think I was more shaped by Johnny Cash and him telling sure. the story of Bob Dylan. And then later I was like ready for all 10 verses. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. But I don't know. It's, I can really. Were you raised in a musical story. environment? No, I wasn't just around a record player with a lot of older siblings that okay, I'm the youngest older of siblings. five. Yeah. So everybody liked something different. Probably not until I started songwriting did did it seem like I was here either. I think of those early years as just like paying attention and observing. And I don't think of it in a, in a bad way, but no, yeah. um, you got to like soak it in first before you're able to put something forward or put something out in the world. During the lockdown, most of the folks I was talking to, I don't know if your experience was similar, but yeah. most of the folks I was hanging out with on FaceTime or phone calls and whatnot, Everyone was kind of taking a trip down memory lane. Like, yeah, me and my partner were not watching anything past 1995, you know, like <laughs> people were just going backward and reminiscing maybe about, you know, when things weren't so pandemic. And I kind of found myself doing that um, as well with music and the whole mourning process of, oh, I can't go out and tour and I just did this record and I can't even go out in the studio right now. And kind of mourning the loss of having to sit still. It was a nice reflection moment of, oh yeah, yeah. Well, where, how long have I been doing this? And where did it really start? And even though me playing music personally started from meeting those kids in high school, I was very active in my church back home. And most of the music that I was learning that wasn't my own wasn't really pop music or popular music. It was just, yeah, just stuff from the church. There's kind of an overlap because the church is one of the few places where people are sitting around singing with guitars, you know, like actually sure. singing together. And sure. so those old songs become really unifying. So Backslider was more, I mean, it's a gorgeous record, by the way. Um, Thank you. I just love how your voice says a lot. And I think going from like listening to your catalog of songs, it just feels seamless and it feels like hey, this is the truth here or over here or whatever. Sure. And I, I really appreciate the quality of that in those songs. We did the bulk of the covers record in El Paso or right outside of El Paso at Sonic oh, Ranch. Okay. So everybody came and the people drove instead of flying. So from LA and New York, some of the musicians that were down there. For these, so it was like, it was a commitment to get there yeah, and exhilarating because we, I, like you're saying, this this time of not being able to just be in the room. And then when you're back together and you're making music mm. together, it's just like, it's, I think I didn't realize how much I had missed it. Yeah. And then the song running on empty feels like it, it meant something new to me now hearing that and feeling like, man, that's really how it feels. 
Yeah, no doubt. I can see that for sure. In the times when I've been able to do live recordings or studio recordings, there are so many technology improvements that have helped us to record and go back and re-record and make changes. But then I think about my youngest child who he's three years old and doesn't have any understanding of why you would use an eraser. So if he's going to draw a line or color a picture, he's going to just go all in. And what David's describing in this creative process is actually giving yourself to the limitations, saying no to some of the technological advances that would say, oh, we could fix that, or we could redo that, or we could make an adjustment, and let me just try that one more time. But he's saying, let's not use erasers, and let's just go for it. And in the times when I've recorded this way, it's actually exhilarating because you are called to bring your best self into that moment and you're called to in many cases collaborate with other people and whatever spontaneously happens in that moment is what's captured so there's some magic to it and it is one of my favorite ways to make art so rules and regulations was this was all Vintage gear, is that right? With no overdubs? Yeah, it was all vintage gear, no overdubs, record straight to tape. And, uh, you know, I knew we were doing that and I knew we were recording live. And I was really excited yeah. to do that again because it had been years. Yeah. What I was misunderstood about was that it was being mixed straight to tape also. Oh, and so wow. there was no, so we, you know, I think there are six tracks on this EP, but. You so know, it was analog? We, yeah, on an analog. And okay. so we. I think we had done three, mm -hmm. and, you know, knocked them out and like, okay, yeah, everyone feel good about it. We go into the control room, listen back. We're like, yeah, I think that'll do. And in my head, I'm like, we're going to mix these. And then we go in to do like track four and we come into the control room to listen to it. And Jacob, who was playing lead, he said, I think we need to redo it. So I need to turn up my amp. And uh, mm -hmm. I said, oh, you don't need, they're going to mix it. And the engineer was like, we're not mixing it this is mixed i said oh so no one the other songs they're not they're just done he said yeah you gave us the thumbs up and they're done so i was kind of more of a stickler with the latter half of the of the recordings and to be fair i just missed the conversation uh, it's not like they were trying to pull one over me but well it uh, sounds like a happy accident because it it feels it really, like it really was. holds together uh did you ever see that there was a documentary on Jerry Seinfeld, comedian, where he throws out all of his old material and then restarts. It's sort of exploring that process of him being at the top of his career and saying, I'm going to just sure. like go back to creating this whole thing again. It almost sounds like that where you kind of get to step into this role and realize like, okay, here it is. This is what it is. It was. And I, you know, a happy accident. Absolutely. Especially with the, you know, with the, the title track being rules and regulations and um, <laughs> just kind of not not living in that studio headspace of nitpicking and you know having to do everything by a certain formula or you know guidelines or this is yeah. how you make a great sounding album you know nothing like that it was just these are some humans that are all squished into a tiny little room and we're <laughs> we're counting off and we go and yeah you know I, I was going through something during that time and I don't really recall a lot of being mm -hmm. present in the studio at that moment mm -hmm. um, but when I listen back to that EP it it makes me so so happy because 
and not in the sense that I think we killed it. I I look I listen back to it and I'm like, oh God, that's terrible. Oh no, that. But I remind myself, it's that was the gig, and yeah, a document for what for what the gig is. I think we knocked it out of the park. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. How do the limitations change your creative process? Like, so you set up a couple of things. You're like, here are some guardrails for this project. Does that help you to become more creative when you have some some guardrails around? Yeah, for sure. When you kind of feel confined. And I'm also an individual who uh, thrives by a deadline, you mm-hmm. know? And so, oh, this is coming up and, you know, it's due in two days. And that's when I really start buckling down. If you give me too much head start, then I, I'm kind of like the the tortoise in that way. Yeah, um, <laughs> me too. Well, just kind of taking my time and goofing <laughs> off and not really, not really focusing on the finish line. That's what it, I'm more of the hair. That's right for sure. Yeah, yeah. When I think about the the way that the last few years has changed those rhythms for us, like deadlines we're all kind of fluid, you know, we'd try to say, okay, well, we're going to do this thing on a certain date. And for, you know, essentially two years, it was like, that may or may not happen. And I think it changes something in your brain where I started really loving structure more and more. Like I, (laughs) I love routines. I love still setting an alarm, even if I'm only on zoom meetings. And so I don't know if it'll be a permanent change. That's probably a lot of what we're asking these days is like how many of the things we've picked up or are going to be permanent. You know, and how many things are we really still wanting that to stay wet cement so we can keep changing and pivoting to something sure. new? For your creative process, you like to set a deadline. You Do you do that with songwriting as well? If you have a project, like you write the songs to kind of all fit together in a bucket. When I first started making albums, it was like, oh, well, how many songs go on a record? Ten? Uh-huh. Okay. Let me find ten songs that I like that I've written over the last five, six years or whatever it is. And yeah. that happened for the first couple albums. And it wasn't until about 17 when I did We're Not Going Anywhere where I wanted to do something that was a little bit more cohesive. And then My Love is a Hurricane mm-hmm. became even more so that way. And I haven't really perfected like what the folks call a concept record, but mm-hmm. it's something that I'm, I'm, I think, constantly trying to pursue is a seamless body of work. You know, and I, I find the beauty in my old records. I think they're really cool, but uh, mm-hmm. I want to do a perfect cover to cover album of a theme. Uh huh. And my love is a hurricane is uh, you know the closest I've I've achieved in pursuing that. You were expecting a sweet rain. You got hit with the hurricane. Dark clouds, heavy debris. I know what it's like to love me You lost your home in the storm Baby, when I rain, I pour 
sorry to displace your spirit You're probably not ready to hear this You gotta know I love this image and this backstory. I remember a few years ago having a conversation with my sister about like this whole idea that we're all born into a time and a moment and that there's stuff going on that it kind of affects the person that you become in some mysterious, yeah, in this mysterious way. And I, I hear a little bit of that in this. Tell, tell me about where you grew up. Houston. In Houston. Okay. Yeah, in Houston. I was born in August of 83 and my mother was going into labor during Hurricane Alicia. And it's a story I've heard all my life, you know, that mm-hmm. I was born in a hurricane, but I never really put two and two together, nor nor do I really give that much credit to the stars, which maybe I should, but I just kind of, I hear stories and I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's where I came from. But almost without fail, every year on my birthday, there's some massive storm that's going on, you know, a literal one. And, uh, yeah. and then I started looking back on when my relationships in the past had ended and they were always around my birthday and they always ended in some like massive blow up. And there was never just a cordial, like, you go your way, I go mine. It was just like this, yeah. you know, just that was battle. Style. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when that started happening while I was writing for Hurricane, I think that's when it, it all just maybe not dawned on me, but I, I started viewing that part of my story with a little bit more, I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but I, it, it, it spoke to me a lot more than I'd ever had before. Was that like, do you feel like you could be more gracious with yourself around that? Like just saying, hey, there's actually some poetry to this, even if it's a recurring theme. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And like, and and that's why that song is, you know, my, my goal with the record was to have an entire album and a set of songs that had, hmm. had to do with love and falling in love and mm-hmm. working through love. And and so when I was writing Hurricane, the, the title track, you know, at that point, we were not speaking and um and it was all i wanted to do was write sad heartbreak tunes and i yeah. just refused to and said i'm i'm going to finish this thing and finish it in a really sweet and beautiful way and, and and not make it about myself and heartache i wanted to make it about beauty i mean obviously there's dark tones going on throughout the record uh, sonically but you know, the mm-hmm. the content lyrically is sweetness and togetherness and partnership. If you had the perfect concept record, do you imagine this almost like seeing it on a, on a stage? Does it play out that way visually to you when you're writing? That's a great question. I don't know if I've thought about it on stage, but as soon as you said that, yeah, so much of my influence is taken from film. And as a kid, you know, when all my homies are all talking about their favorite records growing up. I'm like, did y'all have the Scream soundtrack or did y'all have the Independence Day <laughs> score or whatever? Like, And I, I loved movies. My, I come from a family who loves cinema mm-hmm. and I'm still that way. And so I wasn't, I wasn't collecting artists, you know, in my little CD holder. It was all just movie soundtracks. I love that. Yeah, and, it makes uh, sense. And, and so I guess, yeah, to answer your question, I never really put two and two together but yeah hearing you ask about do i see it mapped out on stage yeah i think i think there is like kind of a cinematic thing that i'm 
Mm. I mean, that'd be pretty badass to uh, be put on stage. (laughs) A few months ago, I was in New York with my daughter for her 13th birthday. Took her to see Hades Town, which is a musical. I mean, I don't know this one. It's a singer songwriter, Anais Mitchell, and I'm sure it evolved from her songwriting as at the start to what became a musical that's based on the ancient Greek mythology Hmm. of Orpheus and. so it was just really stunning but the music it kind of seeing a broadway show like that that felt like it had all the elements and the warmth and the intimacy that acoustic music does like a singer-songwriter music it was the first time i had thought about it the same way i was like what if these two things came together it's a great example of taking a creative and then putting their creative work into a lot of different forms and i think that's one of the one of the things that really takes a lifetime because you we're just not always aware of what's going on within us and sometimes until i write the song i don't actually know what i'm thinking about or you know four years later when you come back and listen to it you're like oh it all oh my gosh it's true Uh, It's so true. So between the songwriting and the recording part and actually connecting the music with an audience in person, which is your kind of the high point for you? I love, I love it all. I don't love the travel part, but I love being behind a microphone in a live Mm -hmm. setting for sure. Rules and regulations was tracked um, all live together in a room and back backslider were not my songs. So it's been a minute since I've done this, but to be alone in the vocal booth, I think might be the most spiritual moment for me. Hmm. Um, that is, that, that's the moment I think that every song, no matter if it's me or if it's you, Sandra, that is the last moment that it's 100% yours. Yeah. Wow. And then after, after that, it, it becomes the world's, you know? And so I, I tend to take that, that moment very seriously. I mean, I'm not a crazy person, but you know, I respect that moment a lot. And, um, you know, I'm not screaming at people and telling everyone to shut up or whatever, but yeah. you know, I prepare for it and I enjoy it and I take my time. And, you know, if I knock out of the park in the first couple, then I'm not just trying to milk it forever, but that's the mm-hmm. moment I think that I really, really respect the most. Man, I love hearing that. Cause I've, I've never thought of it that way. We, I had a conversation recently with a producer friend. She was describing her studio and how she built it. And one of the things was to try to create these open spaces where you can see and interact. But that there's something about that isolation booth, you know, even the fact that it's called that. And there is sure. this, this like, I think it has the potential to be really stressful if you feel like all this pressure. But if you actually feel like, hey, I can completely take off the mask and be completely honest yeah. in this place. And yeah. sometimes it helps to do that. I guess it's like, you know, sure. dancing in the dark. <laughs> yeah, and, for sure. You know, you can just like be completely free to yeah. express. And when we did uh, Run Now on Empty, I, I was in the studio. I was actually at her studio to do the vocals. You had done vocals on it. Um, in Austin, right? And I was hearing what Tyler had, um, Tyler Chester had produced, but but I was hearing it for the first time in that kind of isolated space, and oh, it was wow. so moving to kind of yeah. hear your voice and that all that was going on. So again, you're going back to this thing of like these are in some ways you could think of that as limitation, but it actually can create some magic because you're communicating with such a simple, like, attentive way of doing that. You know, yeah. you're able to really hear and i i just gotta say before we move on you knocked it out of the park 
Man, you made that easy. I uh, I think it was more than I could have done just me singing it. I think just the dynamic of being able to sing that together. So thank you. You gave me a very nice compliment saying that I, I say so much in my voice. I yeah. I think the same with you. I, I think that uh, I just adore your vocals. Uh, I think you know what you're doing. Thank you. And it's uh, just a beautiful thing. I uh, I'm, I lived in Nashville for a brief time. I should tell you this story yeah. before. Okay. <laughs> for a very brief time, like August of 07 to May of 08. So like 10 months, nothing crazy. Oh, wow. Okay. I was living in Dallas before I moved and I went and visited a friend in Nashville in like May of 07, just to hang out for a week, get to know the city or, you know, see some things, meet some people. And he took me to go see a show at uh, Mercy Lounge, and uh, it was you and Matthew Perriman Jones. And it was oh, at that wow. show that I said I want to move to Nashville because the oh show just gosh. blew me away. David, that's that's amazing. All these little intersections. What was your impression of Nashville? So it's probably exploded since then. But thinking about that little snapshot between two thousand eight and nine. You know, I, I when I when I left, I, I was working at Fido, and I was just kind of lost in life at that point. And I moved out there, you know, to become rich and famous. And, <laughs> and, uh, like we all do. Sure. And I, I think during my 10 month stint, I'd only played out live maybe twice at this little place called Christopher's pizza. And it was on DeMond oh, yeah. and, yeah. uh, and no one showed up or whatever. I mean, and rightly so I, I no one knew who I was and I wasn't doing anything and I was just kind of lost and kind of floating around. I, I wasn't really sure. So when I lost my job at Fido and I hit the road, there were two or three years where I was blaming Nashville for just being a terrible city that is so mm. self-involved and obsessed with industry. And they never gave me the time of day. But then I grew up and I was like, I, <laughs> I wasn't doing anything. Mm. You know, I was working at a coffee shop and I played two shows there. So I think my <laughs> view of... The city at that point, you know, was really just coming from this lost kid who didn't know himself for what he really wanted out of life. And uh, yeah, yeah, it it does seem like it still attracts it attracts people with that hope and with that story. The more the longer I live here, and I feel some ambivalence too. I kind of feel like that about the transactional nature. It's like if you do this, then I'm going to do that. Whereas sure. the collaboration of really making music or being humans and like <laughs> you know, real generosity is completely different than that. You know, it's very different. And you know, when I moved to Austin, and as similar as both towns can be, that is the one big difference. You know, I yeah. come out here and. I'm known here in the city, but when I go out to a bar and shoot pool with friends, we're not talking shop. Yeah. You know, we're we're quoting movies and making jokes and yeah. you know, betting on pool well, and giving someone five bucks to go two songs on the jukebox. You know, as soon yeah. as I step foot into Nashville to go hang out, it's immediately, what's next and what are you doing? And Yeah. So. Do you think Austin has less of an ego? Is it some of that, like the self-importance of Nashville? <laughs> Is that, well, how would you just? That's a great it? question. I don't know. I, <laughs> I think people in Austin are really obsessed with Austin. I, That's I, true. There's a, I, I see it for just, it's my home now, and you know, I, yeah. I go to my two or three places and, and hang. But mm -hmm. you know, I overhear conversations that happen at coffee shops, and 
and people love this city. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, a little too sure. much sometimes, you know. Uh, yeah. I'm like, it's not that tight. Maybe you should get a passport <laughs> and cruise around, you know. But <laughs> yeah, it's a cool it's, town, and I'm very happy I live here. But uh, come on, yeah, you know, this isn't this isn't New York. Let's let's relax. I've reflected on David's comments here and thought about the cover song, Heart of a Girl, that I sang on this new record. It's a song by the Killers, and Brandon Flowers sings this lyric. Um, in this transient town, waiters and dealers trying to get their foot in the door. And I think about Nashville being kind of a transient town. I also hear this song as kind of a prayer, and I don't think that was... Who knows? I don't know his original intent and the story of the song, but for me, this song really is like the Nashville prayer of what it is to be seen and known and that we reach for it and we're trying to figure it out. And all the while, there's a story, there's a thread line going through our our plans that we make. Sometimes our, our moving and our geographical location is part of how we get to figure that out. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. You were speaking earlier about the, the maybe the habits that were formed during the shutdown and if those things are going to stick over, yeah. over time. One, one ma massive life change that came to me was the gratitude for being able mm. to play for people. And it is a complete rebuilding the career. I mean, yeah. before the lockdown, mm. the numbers that were coming in, you know, ticket sales and merch or whatever. It was, yeah. I was shaping up to do pretty well for myself financially, you know, and, and make a bigger name for myself and whatnot. And those numbers have just fallen off like crazy. Mm. I've caught myself so many times. Wow, David, you've really grown up that kind of way caught myself because had I been looking out of the crowds I'm looking at currently four years ago, I would have been a very angry person. And uh, now I'm seeing, you know, whether it's 30 or whether it's 100, wow, people are here. Sick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and I feel like yeah. I, I have, I've like, I don't know, rediscovered the youth, the 17 year old David who first played in front of people. And mm -hmm. um, like, wow, people are here. This is pretty sick. And just playing the show like I am at Radio City. And it's been yeah. really, really cool. Wow. I, I agree. I not long ago played at a small room in uh, Charlotte at e the Evening Muse. Mm -hmm. And this was like, I had just released Carolina in my mind. And uh, the room was singing so loud that they oh, were wow. like demanding another chorus. You know what I mean? Like they're singing and we're like, okay, we're. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so wow. we kind of 
I mean, to feel carried by that group singing is just, there's nothing else like it. Right. And then you're like, well, we probably didn't make any money with that stuff. (laughs) Well, that's the thing too is, and you bring up a great point. Like what a, first off, what a beautiful moment. I can't believe that. I got chills when you were telling that story, but no matter the size of the crowd, the people who are showing up are like, Oh my God, I am yeah. here. We are together. Yeah. <laughs> it's gnarly. You know, I just got back from a European tour and I've played tours over there, I don't know, maybe four or five times. Yeah. And every time I've hit Scandinavia in the past, they're just so overly polite that they barely even applaud. So reserved that it makes me feel like I'm terrible at my job, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, and it's always a very intimidating place to perform. But these folks over there in Sweden and Norway were like, I felt like I was playing in Austin, Texas. I mean, they were hooping and hollering and going just Amazing. wild. And it was, did I, was I actually terrible back then? And now I'm better. They're like, no, we're just happy to be here. You know, and, uh, it was really cool. Uh, it's the energy exchange that happens is, um, that's the magic. I mean, so even in those reserved audiences, uh, you know, up into the upper, Midwest, I think there are a lot more reserved audiences, right? When you go sure. to Texas or you're in the Carolinas. And it is fascinating to watch how the personality of different nights of the week. Have you noticed that? Like how people oh, behave, sure. right, on different nights sure. and yeah. even the difference between a Saturday and a Sunday night crowd. It's just there's so much going on yeah. in the in the room and no two nights are the same. No. Nope. Kind of keeps it interesting. Yeah, it does. Yeah, when folks ask, <laughs> does it get does it get old singing the same song for ten years? And I'm like, truth be told, it's not the same song. You know, yeah. it's you're in a different room playing for different people, and you may have eaten a terrible meal an hour before you got on stage, yeah. or maybe you had the best meal or went on a walk. Like, you're not singing the same song. It's mm. it's constantly changing. If there are creatives listening, whether they're in music or something like that, what have you done to kind of measure your creative output other than just this like success failure? Uh, How do you keep going when you feel like there's a lot of resistance in the work? Finding new things to be excited about. I mean, Hmm. I've been writing lyrics for a long time and singing, you know, even though I feel like I've improved as a writer and as a singer, you know, for the most part, I, I write in a really similar way. And so finding new challenges to, okay, I'm going to sit down and write a tune, whether mm-hmm. or not it'll see the light of day, but sit down and write a tune that's 100% mm-hmm. fiction, you know, which is not something that I try to tackle very often. And this year, instead of spending a lot of time on lyrics, I'm spending a lot of time on guitar. And so I'll just sit up here in my office and I'll make a little beat with my machine and then lay down a bass line and just rip (laughs) solos and try to play guitar, tackle that for a little while, you know, Mm -hmm. because right now I don't feel like I have anything to say or I don't know what I want to talk about. Maybe in the past that would have really frustrated me and where I just would say, well, screw it, you know, and close the book and, and just forgot about music entirely. But now I'm like, well, just because I don't have a, something to write about doesn't mean that I can't, play and so i have like just i was scrolling through yesterday i don't know maybe like a hundred or so tunes that i've put together in the last couple months 
that are fully formed songs that don't have a single lyric. <laughs> <laughs> but they're they're really cool and they're really fun. They're all extremely different. And um, the one thing that's that ties them all together is like you know midway through there's just this very terrible ripping solo and, uh, <laughs> that's, that's just over the learning. top loud. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just learning. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I love it. For anybody listening, or, or you know, for you mm-hmm. or me, just because one thing isn't really like clicking, mm-hmm. doesn't mean there isn't a whole world out there that we can still explore. Yeah, man, nothing kills creativity more than pressure yeah. of like, oh, I've got to think of something really interesting right now. It's like, no, just like relax and do something that's fun and life giving, and then it comes back. And it's because it's all in there. It's just sometimes it it doesn't want to come out. You know. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Okay, so that, you know, even as you're describing that, there's this element of play. Like, yeah, ha- we have to kind of play and still yeah. do something. And when you said that about playing pool or just talking about movies with your friends, I think if that's not happening, if there's not sure. just this sense of like taking the pressure off. But I will ask as a follow-up, are you pretty disciplined about it? Like, do you turn the amp on every day? No, no, I don't. Okay. It, it, you know, I'd read interviews or watch people being interviewed yeah. Say that they spend six to eight hours a day writing and I'm just like, okay, I guess that's what I need to be doing. You know, and, I, and there were a yeah. few years where I attempted that and I, I was a lot more dedicated, but I think I needed it in the sense that I learned how to use my mind in that way. Uh-huh. And I don't want it to be that for me right now. I want it to be fun and yeah. exciting. And I want to light up when I write a line that's just crazy yeah. you know you yeah. know and i want to and i want to work on something for three months and i don't i don't want to feel like i need to finish songs in an afternoon mm-hmm. you know after deliberating a while about the name of this podcast we talked about it being called the slow work i mean that's you know risk to sound like it's a really boring podcast but i think all the really good <laughs> stuff does take time you know good sure. food takes time relationships good relationships take time the history sure. of somebody you knew and road bikes with when you were a kid like there's something there that that you can't really trade or sure. substitute you know and sure. so i feel that that's part of your music that's what i hear in and it's the songs you write. It's also like just the sound of your voice that there's a slowness to that. And I mean that in a, a, a good way. <laughs> there's something in there to to give us pause and to cause us to think about the stories of our own lives. And um, Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you for the work that you do. And um, yeah. yeah, it's really fun to sing together this spring. And I hope we get to do some more of that later. And I, and I like the name of the podcast. And I like the mentality behind it. Um, Thanks. It's the business, the the business of show that creates this unrealistic sense of urgency that we have to constantly, you know, be output, output, yeah. output, content, content, and nothing makes me just cringe more than that idea, you know. Mm-hmm. I think there's a pressure to put the content in smaller and smaller containers where you're just mm-hmm. like, well, maybe. <laughs> Yeah. Maybe this one's kind of unruly and it just takes up some space, you know, yeah. and and maybe we need that sometimes and not always. I think we need all kinds of art. I think we need, you know, noisy songs and angry songs and sad songs. I think we need all of it. Thank you so much for joining. It's good to talk with you, David. Thanks, Sandra. Good to hang. August of 83, Alicia came to wreck my city. Before-
This question about what to do in our creative efforts when there's not commercial success and whether you're a writer or a quilter or a journaler or whatever you make and enjoy making, there may not be a commercial outlet for it immediately and it may not be the time or the season to invest all your life savings in it, but there is some discernment there that's really important and if you have some people in your corner that you can ask and that you can consider these questions of when to stay or when to go. It's an important one that our creative life would not be contingent upon how commercially viable the work is because so many times the work is just good because it's beautiful and it's worth doing. And I think we need people to be our cheerleaders, to come alongside. And I I hope that you hear that even in this show and in these times that we have to have these conversations, that there is value in the work, no matter what the outcome is, maybe on a monetary level. And you might find that there's a way to get a small group together or some other like-minded creatives that could be an encouragement to you and a mutual encouragement to one another, just that we would keep on doing the good work of making beautiful things and that it it has value whether we decide to stay or go in Nashville or in the big cities or in the big opportunities, that there's a different measurement of success. The Slow Work is a production of Christianity Today. Executive produced by Mike Cosper. Produced by Luke Bronner and Azure Phelps. Edited and mixed by Dan Phelps. Original music by Tyler Chester. Graphic design by Chris Bennett. And I'm your host, Sandra McCracken. Thanks again for listening. 